Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, it's Kincaid and Breckenridge. I'm Rob Breckenridge and Roger Kincaid here as well. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. If you missed it today, a couple of really interesting conversations, one of them about Playboy magazine and the role it's played over the last several decades and whether it could be seen in any way as advancing the cause of feminism or whether it was an obstacle to feminism. Uh, we also talked about the concept of a negative income tax. Finland is floating the idea of giving everybody in the nation a minimum income of about 800 euros. Would we save money and have a better society if we implemented a similar plan here in Canada? Listen to us every weekday, 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770 and com. Morning Talk for Calgary on News Talk 770. All right, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. We're still to come with the program. More time for uh, your calls, your texts as well. But after 11 o'clock, we're going to talk about uh, connected toys. Some of the perils of buying your kids toys that uh, have the Internet connection that are meant to make them more interactive, but also raise some some privacy and security concerns. We'll tell you more about that after 11 o'clock. Let's talk about Playboy magazine right now. We did a piece recently uh, on Playboy magazine, their announcement uh, that they would cease the publication of nude images. Uh, They'll still have photographs of of women, I guess, uh, to, to varying degrees of nudity just short of actually being nude and uh, still have the articles and the features that uh, the people say they they read yeah so whether gonna, they do or not i don't know they're going to fall into a category now where gq magazine and and uh details maxim these types of magazines right. are more prominent as opposed to a category where uh hustler and other uh, pornographic magazines are um, and there's some interesting conversations about what this shift sort of means and it is kind of a a turning of the page, if you'll pardon the pun, for Playboy magazine. And, and it's, it's raised some interesting conversations. Uh, one line in particular, now I'll, I'll be frank with you, this is just an assertion that I saw put out there by a very passionate commenter on a newspaper uh, comment board uh, who said that Playboy magazine has done more for feminism than Gloria Steinem. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. I wonder if that would be a good debate, if somebody could argue that over a pint in a pub somewhere. But it does sort of um, open the conversation up onto an interesting angle. Now, Playboy magazine, coincidentally or not, uh, began publication and uh, and grew its subscriber base during the time that we call the sexual revolution, that period from the 60s to about the 80s, where uh, women became more uh, sexually liberated. And it's in part because of that. Other people point to the birth control pill as being a, a, you know, a catalyst for the sexual revolution. But it all sort of falls into the same melting pot, the same cauldron of conversation that we're having here right now. Hey, by the way, in 1963, that uh, very same Gloria Steinem went undercover Cover as a bunny of the Playboy Club in, in Chicago, and that became a pretty famous piece that she wrote about what she saw as some of the, the exploitation going on there. So that's been Playboy's complicated relationship with women over the years, that maybe they've uh, given a platform to some more progressive views uh, about sexuality, but at the same time, I mean, you know, a lot of people have accused them of having exploitation of women as, as a business model. 
All right. Um, I'm going to defer to you on this one, Rob. Dr. Heather Brunskill-Evans is our guest, but since you are the Premier League watcher, I, you will pass the pronunciation test better than I will, so I leave it to you. Well, at the University of Leicester, a uh, research associate, a founding member of the Resist Porn Culture, an organization uh, that, that aims to resist the porn industry and the objectification of women. And yes, Leicester City, my goodness, quite a season they're having. Uh, Professor, thanks <laughs> for joining us here on the program. Hello. Um, your thoughts on... on uh, Playboy's role, first of all, just in, in as Roger said, the, the sexual revolution, where, where does Playboy fit in, in your view? Well, you, he was quite right that Playboy emerged at the same time that there was an alleged sexual revolution and women were much more sexually liberated. I think that the two are separate. I don't think that they're joined together. In fact, I think that Playboy piggybacked, as it were, yeah. on the sexual revolution for its own ends. So the feminist plea at that time was that there was a double standard, that men could be sexual and that women had to be innocent, so we would might have a sort of virgin whore dichotomy and that women fell into two of either one of those brackets. And feminists quite rightly resisted that and said that women were sexual agents as, as much as men and that um, they were fed up with the double standard that men could be sexual and that women couldn't. So given that um, laudable aim, as far as I'm concerned, then Playboy as a... Um, as an industry, as it were, as representative of a pornographic industry, came in and capitalized on that and suggested now that there was no longer any um, prohibition against women taking their clothes off and, and appearing to be sexual, then Playboy was somehow uh, an example or, or an outlet for that sexuality. In fact, in my view, um, what it did was it just replayed the old story but in new ways, i.e. that men, women are there to be looked at um, by men and, um, and objectified by men. I, so I think it had very little to do with the sexual revolution. I think it exploited the sexual revolution, if you see what I mean. Well, right. I mean, <laughs> you don't have to look too much further than the subtitle of the magazine, which is Entertainment for Men, as opposed yeah. to Liberation for Women. But, yeah. um, you know, we exactly see... Exactly so. <laughs> right. Well, we... And that could be the end of the conversation, I suppose. It but... could be. <laughs> but it won't be. Um, Marilyn Monroe is the first uh, cover model for for Playboy magazine, and Marilyn Monroe is uh, um, known for some of her quotes, like uh, "What do you wear to bed?" Chanel Number no. Five, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, do we some do we conflate the two, or is there some overlap? Uh, do we see Marilyn Monroe as uh, a sort of uh, a liberated feminist icon, or do we see her as somebody who was always a pawn in a game of male entertainment? Do you know, we could end this particular part of the conversation right there because I want to say immediately that she was a pawn. Mm -hmm. And um, one just has to look at her life and her life's end uh, to imagine that she is some, in some sense an example of, of feminist autonomy and, and liberation would seem to be quite misguided. This isn't to say that she wasn't... Um, a, de a determined person who wanted to be the agent of her own life, who was struggling to to have an independent uh, identity, but I think she she failed at that. That her life story tells tells that, and that in a sense she turned herself into an object. Um, I don't mean that she was culpable. I mean that 
for her at that moment in time to to attempt to 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 get in control of her life and to be wanted and to be empowered she went down a particular route this isn't to blame her in any way whatsoever but its outcome wasn't happy i don't know too much about the apps i'm not an expert on Mar marilyn on monroe but what i do know is that she i i don't i don't think she was actually happy in her relationships and in fact i think there are some quotes and i can't quote them now because you've just <laughs> thrown this at me as it were mm -hmm. which suggests that she was a bit unhappy at being objectified actually that uh, it distressed concur, her yeah. that's right that it wasn't enough for her uh, over the years, I mean, at, at times Playboy has um, published uh, the works of, of uh, certain women, certain feminist icons, and, uh, you know, pushed the boundaries in that sense. Uh, and, and defenders of Playboy would point to that and say, you know, I mean, here's something this magazine was doing uh, that other magazines won't uh, or didn't at the time, wouldn't. So, was, is that enough to, to somehow rehabilitate the, the image of Playboy in your eyes, or did those gestures uh, amount to very little? If you could just clarify what you mean by pushing the boundaries, which boundaries were they pushing? Which boundaries was Playboy pushing? Which might rescue it from my from my dumbing critique. Particular <laughs> things that you refer. Well, to? I mean, you know, some of the example. I'm I'm just uh, quoting what other defenders have said. Like at the time no, years no, ago, I, I know that. I know right that. when they they published uh, some of the works of uh, Margaret Atwood, or uh, when they published the interview with uh, Betty Davis in in 1982, and she talked about women's rights and gay rights and birth control. These these kinds of issues that for a men's magazine, this was not typical content that was that was aimed at these men it seemed to be at least in in the eyes of the defenders of playboy was aimed at uh, advancing social causes do you know i think this was a completely cynical but in ingenious ploy it's as you were saying that it reminded me when cigarette cigarette adverts were um legal in this country i don't know about the united uh, canada um but at the point at which that we we did have cigarette adverts on television it always represented the smoking people as doing very very healthy activities of course the reason for that was to associate health with smoking because in fact health is the most uh, smoking is the most unhealthy thing you can do so in the imagination it plants the idea that the two things can sit side by side health and smoking and i think playboy did exactly the same thing in its marketing technique it uh, got some um high profile women who might call themselves feminists to 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 actually um model for it and it printed particular articles and it set itself out to to take the smut out of pornography and to tell the world see look you guys you're perfectly normal um yeah and regular you guys watching this uh, uh doing more than uh, watch the magazine or read the magazine and, and and see this isn't oppressive towards women because the these women are participating in it so that's how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. I, I know that there are even feminist defenders of Playboy, and to this day, feminists there is a, a branch of feminism which will which will support pornography as being about sexual liberation. Now, 
I'm very happy, very happy indeed to get into that argument. It's a little bit of a complex one, but if you want me to, I, I can. But at the outset, I want to say that I'm completely unmoved by an alleged feminist okay. support of... Sorry, but do, do you consider Playboy to be pornographic? Did you consider it well, pornography? It, it, it has a particular place within pornography. Um, okay. It normalized the looking at pornography. I, I, I think I said in the article that you're referring to that I wrote for Huffington Post, that it transformed the image of watching pornography from what dirty old men did. That's what um, the English um, phrase for it is. Um, and the regular guy who's supposed to be above watching pornography, what Playboy did was say, it's really cool for you to watch this. In fact, you're an intelligent kind of guy if you do, because we have intelligent articles in here. Right. Now, what then happened was that paved the way. It reorientated our culture and paved the way for the kind of pornography that we see on the Internet now. Now, the kind of pornography we see now makes Playboy boy look rather innocent mm-hmm. but um but that's just in the contrast that just means that we've gone so far it's become so extreme now not just the objectification of women um and and um all her orifices in full view of the camera but the violence attached to it now playboy didn't um pedal violent images particularly although you could argue that there there are some there um i think there are images of women lying on the tops of cars with the hunters with guns around the car and so on it's as if she's an animal that's been captured i'm not quite sure whether that was a playboy image or another another one but that would have been quite shocking in the 1970s that wouldn't be wouldn't be shocking now but i think the main function of playboy was to normalize pornography and say hey guys it's really okay to watch this you're not a sad person and uh, not a sad loser kind of person and um and and the rest is history as it as it were well that's a that's a fair comment uh, obviously but then on the other side of it there are women who who have sought to to be in playboy for their own reasons uh and one notable is uh Pamela Anderson who is going to be the cover girl for this last issue and she will do the last uh uh center spread for the um uh, for the magazine the last nude center spread for the magazine so mm-hmm. uh, how are we then to interpret um the comments from these women who who like it, who like to be seen, who like to be gazed upon, and who want to pose nude, particularly in the pages of Playboy. Is that not a feminist act? Because an individual woman, an individual person who happens to be a woman, gets pleasure from something or desires to take part in in an act, doesn't make it feminist. Feminism isn't about what any individual woman might say or want just as for example if we remove it from feminism for the moment and and put it into the context of racism for example the fact that a a, a person uh, a, a, a black person for example might want to do something or might not want to do something doesn't mean that they can make a, an overall judgment or statement about how to eradicate racism their act by some other people might be seen as racist in itself. So feminism and racism can be seen in the same thing. It's a theory. It's a theory about social structures. It's a theory that goes beyond what any individual wants to do or say. And it points to the ways in which society 
um, deploys certain kinds of power relationships where some people have more power than others. So I would put pornography into the context that, of course, some women will make choices to, in, in the kind of society in which we have now to, to get power from being desired as an object. And, of course, women will... I know that many young women go into internet pornography thinking it's the best possible opportunity they can have to be glamorous and to make money. You know, the Playboy is the is the surface, the glossy surface of a terribly insidious, exploitative and dangerous industry that's hidden beneath that. So we can't just look at Playboy or any one particular person who wants to pose for Playboy, but we have to look at pornography in the round and we have to look at the position of women in society. Now, I assume that as a right-thinking person, you and your listeners um, want to b believe that women should be equal. So I put it back to you, how can women actually be equal in a world in which pornography now, at a click of a mouse, is so violent towards women, peddles the old dichotomy, calls women terrible names, and that children watch it, young people watch it, older men do too, and some women, and representations aren't just in a vacuum. This isn't a fantasy. This isn't just like watching a film. This is People are really, really um, being paid to do this to go through quite tortuous experiences, mm -hmm. actually. Indeed, and it's... when people are observing pornography or watching it, or I don't know whether I can say the word, masturbating to it, they're in a state of high arousal. And what pornography tells people, men largely, is that women like to be exploited in this way. And all I'm saying is that as a society, we need to get out of the closet, all of us, about this. And just reflect upon where we are as a society in relation to women's equality. And can the ubiquitous use of pornography in that heightened state of okay. excitement, it's, it's, in it's, regard it's, to it, the exploitation of the industry, can that really sit alongside a society where men and w women are allegedly equal to one another? I don't think it can. These are very good questions and, and something uh, that we'll certainly contemplate with our listeners uh, following a break. Doctor, we have to uh, end our, uh, our conversation here, and we thank you very much for your time. That's fine. All right, thank you very much for, for inviting me to speak. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was our pleasure, absolutely. Dr. Heather Brunskill-Evans, University of Leicester, research associate and founding member of the Resist Porn Culture Movement. We're late for a break, and we'll take one now. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. It's Kinkade Breckenridge on News Talk 779-748255. We'll revisit some of uh, Barack Obama's speech last night. Uh, he addressed the American people uh, around, I think it was around 6 o'clock our time last night, about terrorism, uh, about mass shootings, and, and how the two converge. So we'll get to that uh, coming up a little bit later on. But as Roger alluded to before the break, uh, this, this concept of a guaranteed annual income, it's been around for a very long time. There are different ways of describing it. There's some nuances in how one might approach it. There's the concept of a negative income tax versus a guaranteed annual income. It's essentially the same thing. Canada tried this out way back in the 1970s in uh, in Manitoba. But it's pretty simple. You just give people money. That's it. 
right? We have a lot of social programs in place in this country that do various things and target different people and provide this, depending on that, and it can get somewhat complicated. The, the argument is that in, for simplicity's sake, you just guarantee everyone a certain level of income, and that's it. Now, this is where you get kind of caught in the, in the mud a little bit, uh, stuck in the mud, because you gotta you got to explain what you're peeling away here. Um, so before you think that uh, lazy people will get money, which they will, you got to consider that you're taking welfare, okay, which is uh, expensive to administrate, it's expensive to implement, and you're getting rid of that. So that whole bureaucracy and that uh, those payments are now gone. And you take similar other social safety nets, you can get rid of those things. Uh, something like AISH, for example, right? This is an income supplement that's designed to help people just just fold it in. Okay, it's that's gone. That bureaucracy is now gone, and you're basically taking a situation where in Canada you'd have the uh, uh, the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, um, handing out money. It would make it cheaper and more effective. And what you would do is you would you would have this you would have everybody doing the same thing, which is filing a tax return. If you want your money, you got to file your tax return, and if you want to stay out of jail for tax evasion, you got to file your tax return. So you'd basically be having the rich doing the same thing as the poor, and the poor doing the same thing as the rich, which was declaring how much money they did or didn't earn. Now, does everybody get this money? Yes. Does everybody get it clawed back? No. Only the people who don't earn enough money don't get it clawed back. But if you're uh, one of, uh, <clears throat> what do they call these? What's the new term for one percenter now? A Trudeau. Uh, you'd get the money clawed back. Does that make sense? Right. I think you want to make sure that there, there's still a built-in incentive to work in this kind of a proposal. But in terms of uh, a simplistic approach to addressing poverty, this is something worth looking at. Now, what, what's going on in Finland? Now, Finland's uh, social insurance institution has, has drawn up some proposals, so they haven't done this yet. But what it would do would pay every citizen a basic income about 800 euros or about, you know, around $1,100 each month and would eliminate all other benefits. These would be tax-free payments that would be paid to all adults regardless of whatever other income they have coming in. But the intent is to actually encourage more people to work. Unemployment there is at, at record levels. Uh, it's about 10% unemployment in Finland, but among younger workers it's about 22%. Uh, so they believe that this can address poverty that it still can be a social safety net, uh, but at the same time encourage people to work. In fact, the way it works now uh, with welfare payments, uh, that a lot of unemployed people would be worse off if they took on some temporary jobs because it would mean they'd, they'd lose out on welfare. So there's an incentive not to work. Better off staying on welfare than taking one of these jobs, low-paying jobs, and lose your welfare payments, and you end up with less. How corrupt is that, right? Uh, and that's the government uh, uh, doing it, corrupting the marketplace. Now, I'll tell you who has the biggest problem with this in my discussion. I've I've long been a proponent of this sort of tax system, negative income tax, and I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of conservative friends of mine, and they cannot get on board. And here's why I don't understand their apprehension. If you want to think about conservative economics, uh, you might go back to some of the most conservative economic theories in uh, recent memory, uh, Ronald Reagan's administration, Reaganomics, and his chief uh, economic advisor was one Milton Friedman, who is a Nobel uh, award-winning, uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist. He is a proponent for this sort of The guy who advised Ronald Reagan says this is a good idea. Here he is describing it. The proposal for a negative income tax is a proposal to help poor people by giving them money, which is what they need, 
rather than as now by requiring them to come before a governmental official, detail all their assets and their liabilities, and be told that you may spend X dollars on rent, Y dollars on food, etc., and then be given a handout. The idea of the negative income tax is to treat people who are poor in the same way as we treat people who are rich. Both groups would have to file income tax returns, and both groups would be treated in parallel way. All right. Now, so, uh, Joe, we're going to get to your phone call in just a second. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, 974-8255. But this is how the math shakes down, and he tries to use some pretty round numbers to explain it. I would be entitled to an exemption of $3,000 without paying a tax. That is, if I had an income of 3000 I would have an exemption of 3000 I would pay no tax. If I had an income of $4,000, I would have a positive taxable income of $1,000. I would be required to pay a tax on that 1000 Suppose I have an income of 2000 Then, by the same arithmetic, I have a negative taxable income of $1,000. Minus $1,000 is my taxable income. The idea of the negative income tax is to apply a tax rate to that minus 1000 and give a man a, a subsidy in proportion to it. For example... The highest rate, it seems to me, at all feasible to use would be 50%, and it makes it simple for arithmetic. <clears throat> Let's suppose a rate were 50%. Then if I had an income of 2000 with a family of four, I would be entitled to receive half of that 1000 back. That is, I would get back $500 and end up with an income of $2,500 available to me. If I had zero income, if I had no income at all, then I would have a negative taxable income of minus $3,000, I would be entitled to receive half of that, or $1,500. Are we all asleep? So it works out. So that the more you work, the more you get. Whereas with welfare, the more you work, they take away your welfare. Right. So it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting idea. And the fact that it has supporters on both the right and left should tell us something that, um, you know, maybe what we're doing now isn't working, isn't it as, as efficient as it could be? And maybe this is, is something worth looking at. Now, apparently Switzerland's going to be voting on this next year. Uh, Switzerland, uh, you know, they, they like voting for things in, in referendums. So they're, they're, this is something that's going to come up uh, next year. They're going to be voting on this. But, yeah, I mean, at the same time, you could argue, well, if it's so great, why is nobody else doing it? Well, you know, it's a fair question. Why, if it's, if it's simple and effective, why isn't it the norm? Why is it so rare, do we think? It's hard to implement because it means you've got to break down a whole lot of stuff. Now, we're going to take a commercial break here, and we'll get into that a little bit uh, further afterwards. But we'd like to hear from you, 974-8255. Do you think this is something that Canada should embrace? We tried it here in Dauphin, that example that Rob mentioned, and people have a lot of great things to say about how it worked, both socially and economically. Finland is floating this as a trial balloon. But would you be willing to accept giving a basic standard minimum income, monthly income, to Albertans? in an effort to improve the quality of life here and also to get more people back to work. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right, 974 It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. We want to hear from you, so let's go to uh, Joe online, too. Hi, Joe. Go ahead. Hey, guys. Uh, first thing I want to say is I am very conservative in almost all of my uh, opinions, except for maybe this one. And uh, I recently read a book by an, a guy named Malcolm Gladwell called What the Dog Saw. Yep. And in that book, he uh, does a case study on a homeless population in I'm not sure what city. The two points that he raised that I think are applicable are here um, is that if you take a snapshot of the homeless population at any given time, 90% of the homeless people are 
Uh, I don't remember the term he used, but I'll call them short-term or acute homeless, meaning they've recently lost their job, uh, become injured or ill or whatever the case, need a couple of weeks and maybe a couple of dollars to get back on their feet. They account for the vast minority of the funds and resources that the homeless population take up. The other 10%, uh, which are long-term homeless, are the ones that develop the stereotype that we all have of people with, um, let's say, uh, drug addictions or those, those, those sorts of things, yep. uh, people that we see on the street. Now, what he found was that the people, this 10%, accounts for such a huge amount of money, not only because of the welfare resources they take up, things like that, but the, the man hours by police officers and the wait times in emergency rooms that they uh, take up. So the number that one person um, racked up as far as bills in a, in a hospital ER room was absolutely uh, enormous. Um, so not only are we avoiding the welfare and the social security and all those sorts of effects, but if we're looking to uh, increase the, effectively increase the manpower of our police officers on the street, which I think everyone is in favor of, and also decrease the wait times and increase the effectiveness of our healthcare system, um, these are both effects that would be uh, seen by giving some sort of guaranteed income to a homeless. Yeah, now, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very classic example, Joe, that, that you're given there, and it's, it's uh, what Housing First advocates use all the time, that instead of spending money keeping people homeless, why don't we spend money giving them homes and we'll watch all these other problems vanish. It's the exact same theory that applies to this negative income tax. Instead of spending money keeping people on welfare, why don't we get rid of welfare and just give them the money that we were spending keeping them there? Absolutely. And if someone were to gut, hold a gun to my head and say, do you want this to be implemented today or not, I would probably say no. But I think there are some interesting questions that can be asked here. And uh, I think there is, I'm, I'm willing to accept the validity of the strategy that this something might be very effective in our, in our uh, situation. And I'd be interested in seeing some studies done to see what sort of numbers uh, would be tied to all these different sort of factors and what sort of numbers we would uh, allocate to the homeless in order to relieve all these other resources right. that everyone in the city needs. All right. Well, thanks for the phone call, Joe. Let, let me put it in perspective. Here's a piece from the Globe and Mail by a couple of professors. This was uh, just a few months ago arguing in, in favor of this in terms of how much uh, it would cost. It says, according to several Queen's University professors, the cost of replacing social assistance and old age security, plus providing every adult with an annual income of $20,000 and children with an income guarantee of 6000 would be $40 billion. Fraser Institute calculates that the total cost of Canada's current income support system is $185 billion. So you, you see how much we're spending, and so there, there would certainly be cost involved in, in this kind of a program, but when you put it in context of what we're spending already and where we can save money, it's, it's impressive. You know the argument against a Housing First initiative for homeless people is? I don't want someone to get a house that they didn't have to work for when I had to work for my house. That's the argument right. against and, it. Right? Yeah, well, sure, and that's fair. I mean, the, the notion of someone's getting something for nothing. Um, I mean, that bothers some people, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's a different kind of argument. But I think everybody realizes that, um, you know, even the most conservative countries, I mean, even the U.S., uh, there's a welfare system. Mm-hmm. There's social assistance. There, there are social programs that exist, and that's certainly the case in Canada. So if, if that's your principled argument, well, then there's a lot you should be mad about in Canada. <laughs> it's an awful lot. The, the same argument applies to, to this guaranteed income. I don't want people to get money that they don't have to work for. Well, guess what? They already do. We've got a system in place that allows for that. Uh, Chick, how you doing? Yes, I am great. 
This is an absolutely excellent topic, and I'm glad that you guys have finally brought it up. Oh, I've, always, I've been looking, Chick, for years for an excuse to talk about negative income tax. This is, you know, this is a, a, actually quite an interesting topic. The, um, the money itself would actually give people a, 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 the, the self-confidence that they're going to have this on a steady basis. But even better than that, the economy... It, any, any economy is only good if the local economy is steady. And the way that you can do that is to give the money to the people, and then people know that they have a steady economy at the local level all the time. And this would, this would make it so that even the small corners of the world are going to be able to depend on a certain amount of local economy. So it's not just, it's not just a major benefit for the individual uh, person. It's a major benefit for the local economy. Yeah, it's a very good point, Jake. You're pumping, if it's $1,000 per person per month, you're pumping that money into those local economies. This makes sense. Uh, Aziz, how you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, you know what? Milton Friedman is a genius, you know. He, he, in a perfect world, he would have, you know, 2% tax rate and nobody gets any subsidies. But he, he, he understood that he lives in a hyper-socialist, uh, conservative, um, um, diverse, country called the united states and he says hmm i can't destroy the welfare state so i'll try to reform it and how am i going to do that i'm going to get people to see the benefit of working for your own money versus waiting for somebody to tell you how to live your life and how much money you can spend right Mm -hmm. so i'm totally in favor for it because the reality is you know we live in a society where people say government has to be in our life you know so if we're going to say that, well, the argument goes, we should find a better way to manage the welfare state, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't get rid of it. It's simple. Too, it's simple. Too much people rely on it. But Milton Friedman's idea of the negative income tax is designed to get people to, you know, get to work and not rely on government money as much as... Uh, we do now, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's a great point, Aziz. Thanks very much. One of the things that Friedman talks about, too, is how, you know, if you're on welfare and you try to go out and get more money, they'll take away your welfare. So that's an incentive to not not uh, go out and get more money. But if you're on negative income tax, I mean, the examples that he used, right? So he had $3,000 and a 50% tax rate. So if you make $0, you get 50% of your $3,000 exemption. You get $1,500. Mm-hmm. If you make $2,000 for yourself... Well, you've only got a thousand dollars left of exemption room, but because you're below three thousand, you get half of it. So you get twenty-five. So if you go out and try and make money, you'll always be doing better for yourself. Right now, keep in mind. I mean, you know, there, there, there's no one model for this, and it can be designed a number of different ways. And at the same time, I mean, I think you've got conservative economists who say this is the social safety net. This we implement this, and that's it. And we don't have anything else. On the other hand, and there are groups in Canada who have uh, more progressive economists uh, in Canada who have argued for a guaranteed annual income uh, to supplement what also exists already. So they would build an even bigger social safety net to say, well, we'll keep a bunch of these other programs. We'll have this as well. So those are two diff- very different ways of coming at it, but still a, a shared belief that this is an effective way of, of helping people. So how big you want to make it, what it gets rid of or doesn't get rid of, uh, that's all in the design. I mean, you know, the problem is... In, in a country like Canada, right, you got so much that's provincial, so much that's federal. It'd be really difficult, I think, for a province to come along and say we're going to do this, um, because it wouldn't eliminate uh, federal benefits, for example, 
Right. So I, I think if it would ever happen in Canada, you'd sort of need everybody to go along with it, the feds and the provinces and, and to to coordinate what it would replace. We'll take a break right here. We'll try and uh, squeeze in a few more of your phone calls afterwards. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Nine seven four eight two five five. Talking about this idea of uh, guaranteed annual income and negative, negative income tax. Maybe there's another term we can come up for, but it's still basically the, the same kind of premise. Uh, Dave wants to weigh in here. Dave, go ahead. Morning, guys. Um, what I was kind of wondering. I mean, I, I really enjoy the topic. I think I think any anytime we can simplify our tax system, uh, I'm all for. But I, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering. How many bureaucrats would we put out of work if we abolished and made simpler our tax code? I think that's half oh, the problem why governments don't like to do things. They, they put a whole pile of unemployed people on the street. Well, it could be. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why our, our system's so costly is in the administration of it. So, yeah, you're right. If, if we had a, a simpler system, we wouldn't need as much of that, and presumably that would mean uh, fewer bureaucrats. Yeah, I, well, like I said, I, 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 it's a nice thought, but I, but I, I, and I, I can't see it happening. Um, just for that, re- for that reason alone, is that uh, the government would have to put too many bureaucrats out of work. Well, you know, the bureaucrats have one vote, just like uh, taxpayers have, and, and I think that taxpayers outnumber bureaucrats. So I think that if it was ever important to uh, to Canadians to get onto a more efficient and let's face it, more prosperous tax, tax structure like the one we're discussing right here, then I think that the bureaucrats would be on the short end of that stick. Well, yeah. let's, let's, let's keep a good thought. Thanks, right. guys. That's a good Thanks. point, Dave. Appreciate the phone call. Dave, you kind of reminded me of you know, the guys on the Shark Tank, because what they always do is they, they, they give all the reasons why they, they think this business is not a good idea, why it's not a good idea for them to put their money in, and they say, for that reason, I'm out. <laughs> so as soon as Dave said, for that reason, I was just waiting for him to say, I'm out. <laughs> but he made his point well. Yeah. Uh, he's right. You know, as we said earlier, really nobody has this. Uh, Canada did a pilot project in the 1970s. Interestingly enough, Richard Nixon pushed for this in the 60s, and that went nowhere. So, you know, Finland's going to try. I guess if they, Finland does this, they'd be really the first country to implement this. Switzerland's going to vote next year, but. That's that's pretty much it. So yeah, there, there's probably all sorts of reasons why this this has been a non-starter in a lot of countries, and you know maybe Dave hit on one of them. It is incredibly heavy lifting to try and in- implement it, let alone to try and is- explain it. It's a very nuanced uh, concept, and it's difficult to get your average bear to buy into uh, conversations about uh, tax policy in the first place. So there'd be a lot of heavy lifting to do if somebody wanted to to take this on. But you know who knows? Maybe one day in in Alberta or Canada, we'll get a government that's actually interested in doing the real hard economic work, not just the platitudes part that gets you elected. I like, by the way, that the Trudeau government is now admitting that, oh, hey, that uh, tax on the rich isn't going to cover everything that we said it would during the election. But, I mean, if somebody ever wanted to try this out, it would, be a, it would make a really, really big difference in the lives of every single Canadian.